Um, We are in week two of our two-week series that we're calling Contending for the Faith, which is a kind of a quick but deep dive into the book of Jude. So I definitely want to invite you to have your Bibles with you or your Bible apps. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a bookshelf on the back wall. You're welcome to grab one of those Bibles uh, because we're going to be in Jude and and just continue to kind of dig deep and, and try to understand what Jude is saying. You know, as I said last week, you can... Uh, um, you can find Jude if, if you're not familiar with it by, well, you can either go into the table of contents and looking at the page number, but easier than that is just go to, to Revelation, where everyone knows where Revelation is, and uh, make a quick left turn uh, one page, because Jude is the, the last book of the Bible before Revelation. It's 25 verses long, it's one chapter, it's one page, um, and it is rich. It is a rich book. Um, so don't let its shortness fool you, because it is a dense beautiful uh, piece of text. There's a lot of, of deep, rich imagery in these 25 verses that Jude writes to us uh, for us to chew on as Christians. And so if you were not here last week to join us, you, you either missed out completely or you escaped by the skin of your teeth because uh, we had a 54 minutes of, of teaching. So if a 54-minute strike, sermon strikes you as something that you want to listen to, by all means, you can go to Facebook, YouTube, our website, whatever, and, uh, and go chew on it some. Uh, if not, well then, congratulations, you escaped. But it was uh, 54 minutes that was very enriching for me to, to, to share and to, to, yeah, just share a little bit about what God has shown me last week, and, and I hope to continue that this week. This week will not be as long, so don't, don't worry about that. Um, but last week was an important text for us. You know, we, we covered the first 16 verses of the book of Jude, which is about two-thirds of the book. And so just kind of a reminder... You know, Jude, the, the person writing this, is, is a brother and a servant to, to Jesus Christ. And he begins by telling his readers that while he had desi- desired to write something encouraging to them, he, he nevertheless now felt compelled to write something to them for a different reason, that they need to contend for the faith or fight for the faith that was entrusted to them from long ago because there are these people, he says, who have come into the church who are beginning to teach things that aren't true. They're teaching false things. And the general thrust of what they're teaching is that people can go and they can live whatever, the way, whatever way they want to live, that they don't need to be strapped down and they don't need to, to have their lives controlled with sort of these fundamentals because the grace of God, we just talked about grace, the grace of God that came through Jesus on the cross has sort of given all these believers permission to, or, or license to go and live immorally. He says, hey, you guys have grace. Go, go enjoy life. Don't worry about it because God has got you covered. The cross took care of everything, so go live it up. And what Jude systematically begins to demonstrate is that there are these other groups, these other people, these other stories all throughout scripture of people who've done similar kinds of things. And all of those groups have one thing in common, that they tried to live as masters or as lords of their own lives rather than honoring God as Lord. All these groups did that same thing. And so the problem with this, according to Jude, is that in every other circumstance, when a, when a group of people tried to live that way, what they found was not freedom. What they found was destruction, that they were destroyed by that desire within them. And as we discovered last week, this is true not just of humans, but this was true of angels as well. Jude depicts the situation where angels have been corrupted by, uh, 
by pride and by lust in their own lives. And so kind of the, the recap, the sentence in a, or the sermon in a sentence, if you will, is this, that those who die live lives of true lies. And so Jude looks at these false teachers and he says in verse 11, he says, woe to them. Woe to them because their false teaching is not going to free them. It's going to be their undoing. And so in Jude's eyes, this isn't really something that we mess around with. We don't take this lightly. And so as we discussed last week, just like Jude, we live in a world that, that has truth and lies, that people around us all the time lie about life and they lie about God and they lie about who Jesus is. You know, we get on social media and we kind of run our mouths about things that seem good or that seem true or that seem godly, but in the end, those things are lies. And so we have to have a discerning eye for the things that are good and the things that are true and the things that are from God so that we can see the things that are false and the things that are not true and the things that are uh, from the world around us and not from God. And so that's, that's kind of the, the beginning point to kind of catch you up with where we were last week as we get started with a word of prayer. If you're visiting with us this morning, again, I like to use this time... Uh, for really a, a moment of reverence before God. Um, and so as we get, get ready to, to pray and just spend some time with the Lord, I like to invite people to, to change their posture, their physical posture before God. Uh, if you're able, you know, feel free to kneel, feel free to stand and raise hands, but, but try to do something that's a little uncomfortable for you so that we can just approach the throne room of God, approach the presence of God and invite the Holy Spirit to be in this room as we get started this morning. Let's pray, church. Father, we, we recognize that we are, are so blessed to be able to come into your presence because you are this, this holy God and you are set apart from the rest of creation. Your, your angels cry out, holy, 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 because you are just so much better and so much greater than we are. Your goodness knows no bounds. Your mercies are new every morning. And you have, have looked upon us and individually, each and every one of us, Lord, you, you knit us together in, your, in our mother's wombs. And you gave us purpose and you gave us life. And Father, you invite us to be in community with you and in your presence. Father, you, you, are, you are doing everything that is necessary to restore the relationship that you had with Adam and Eve in the garden. You are bringing us close to you so we can be in relationship with you and, and feel your love, to love you and be loved by you. And there's no greater love. Father, you are love. And so this morning, as we, we prepare our hearts and our minds to hear your words again, these words, let them be, not be my words, Father, but your words that are spoken through me. Give us ears to hear your truth and your message and allow us, Father, the courage to not just hear, but to put those things into practice. To, to let them be actionable in our lives so that we can change a little bit more every day. Father, help us to be a people who don't flee from change, but who embrace change because change allows us to become more like your son. Change allows us to become more like you. We get to become godly in the process and hopefully be fruitful and bless other people in this world through our love. Father, you say that, that we'll know we are Christians by our love. And, and Father, I pray that, that that is true of us today. May we love you in the way that we love others. May we love you in the way that we love your word. May we love you in the way that we listen. May we love you in the way that we 
We do everything, Father. Help us to be a people of love. You are love, and we give you all praise and glory and honor. It's all yours. It belongs to you and you alone. None of that's for us, Father. We give it to you, or at least we try. And where we fall short, Father, help us to see so that we can do it better. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name, church. Amen. Amen. All right. So last week's message, again, focused on true and false teaching. Those things that we proclaim because we want them to be true because we think that they free us in some way to kind of go and just live the lives that we actually want to live. It's like those times when you want to feel sick. How many of you have ever been here? You want to feel sick because you don't feel like going to work or don't feel like going to school. You're like, oh man, I wish I was sick right now. I just could really use a a day off. Anyone ever felt that? Anybody? Am I alone? I used to like be in class and go, you know what? I just don't feel like sitting in class right now. I'm going to go to the nurse's office for like 20 minutes and just get a break. Um, But, you know, sometimes we we want to be sick or we act like that. And and we do it so much that we actually begin to feel sick, right? Like the the mind is a powerful thing. It has the ability to to, to, to deceive even ourselves. And so this morning, I want to turn our attention to a, a different facet of that tension between two extremes. Those, those times when we are confidently correct or confidently right, and those times when we are confidently incorrect or confidently wrong. Uh, two quick stories to illustrate what I'm talking about and then kind of a bonus one to throw in. When I was in college, uh, my first year or so of college, I was working as a, as a draftsman for an architect. There were three or four draftspeople that, that worked in this firm, and you know, probably a couple of days a week, we would all go out to lunch together and uh, we were standing in line one day, I think we were at like a Taco Bell, and I was talking with my, my buddy Gabe, my coworker Gabriel, and somehow we got on the topic of Sierra Mist. And he's, he's telling me, you know, oh, you know Sierra Mist used to have caffeine in it. I said, no, Sierra Mist never had caffeine in it. He said, dude, yes it did. Sierra Mist had caffeine in it. I said, I promise you it didn't. He said, all right, I'll make you a $500 bet right now. Sierra Mist had caffeine in it. I said, okay, we shook hands. I said, okay, Gabriel, I gotta tell you something, buddy. I said, it was Storm that had caffeine in it, not Sierra Mist. When Pepsi changed to a caffeine-free recipe, if you will, they they changed the name from Storm to Sierra Mist, and you should have seen his face, because right there in that moment, he remembered. He said, oh, you're right, you're right. It wasn't Sierra Mist, it was Storm that was caffeine-free. In that moment, both of us were 100% sure that we were correct about something, but only one of us was right. And I'm happy to say I didn't collect on my $500 bet. Don't worry, I just made him buy me lunch that day and we called it even and it was good. So he bet $500, he got off for probably $5. But uh, I was right. A Couple years later, I'm in college in Oklahoma and we're sitting in, in our small group. Uh, we, had, we had a great small group of friends and somehow we get on the topic of the movie Hook. Anyone remember the movie Hook? Robin Williams plays Peter Pan, right? Somehow, we got on the topic of the, the actor who played Hook. And my friend Anawa said, oh, that was Dustin Hoffman. I said, no, Anawa, uh, that was Donald Sutherland. He said, no, it was not Donald Sutherland, it was Dustin Hoffman. I said, no, you're wrong. It was, it was Donald Sutherland. And so we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I said, I've watched this movie tons of times. I'm a 90s kid, right? It was Donald Sutherland, I know this for a fact. So we get out a computer, go to imdb.com or whatever we did, look at the cast. Guess who it was? It was Dustin Hoffman. I was 100% sure that was Donald Sutherland. All the times I'd watched that movie, and I was wrong. I wanted to show a picture of it just to show you, like, 
you put the right mustache and the right wig on Dustin Hoffman, I swear to you, he looks like Donald Sutherland, like the same guy. But I was wrong about that. I was 100% convinced I was right, and I had to eat my words. I was wrong. Uh, and then kind of the bonus story, a couple years ago, Tiff and I were driving back from Half Moon Bay. We're on Highway 92, kind of climbing the, the hills up into San Mateo. And uh, so, for some reason, we're talking about arbitration. And we started arguing about what the person who leads arbitration is called. And I said that person was an arbiter. And Tiff said, what are you talking about? It's not an arbiter, it's an arbitrator. I said, no, Tiff, it's arbitration, yes. But no, the person who does it is an arbiter. She said, no, it's an arbitrator. So we went back and forth, back and forth. I'm just curious, by show of hands, how many of you would say that person is an arbiter? How many of you would say that person's an arbitrator? Okay, so this is one of those few moments. I pull my phone out, I check it, and guess what happened? We're both right. We're both right. How many times does that happen in life where you get in one of those stupid, petty arguments, and in the end, you both get to walk away satisfied because you're both right? Arbiter, arbitrator, doesn't matter. We were both right. Now, I'm sure that last story is more of a fun aside to kind of illustrate uh, that, you know, in an argument, every once in a great while, both people get to walk away correct, but that's not usually the case. And so while that was really satisfying, it's not very reflective of reality a lot of times when two people disagree, because usually one person is right, or at least right-ish, and one person is wrong, or at least wrong-ish. And so I bet that you can think of or remember a time in your life where you were totally confident about something you believed, only to find out later that despite all of your confidence, you were just plain wrong. I, as a kid, if you remember the oldies song, Chapel of Love, uh, listened to that a lot with my dad in the car. He listened to a lot of oldies. And uh, I listened to that lots of times, not knowing what it was called. And uh, I knew that the, the lyrics of that song were going to the jack-o'-lantern, gonna get married. I knew those are the lyrics to that song. And, uh, you know, until I didn't, you know, I was wrong. So for those of you who have, uh, have intersected with Catholic tradition, you may remember there's a common prayer that a lot of Catholics say when they're, when they're uh, offering grace before a meal. And you know, both of my parents were raised Catholic. And so I got a little bit of that in my upbringing as a kid. And so, you know, the, this prayer was something that my dad taught me to, to pray before every meal as a kid. And, and the prayer goes something like this. Bless us, our Lord, for these thy gifts, which we're about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. Raise your hand if you've heard that prayer before. Okay, a lot of us have heard that, that prayer said commonly. So here's the thing. My dad thought he heard something a bit different as a kid. And so he prayed a different kind of prayer for, for many, many years and then joyfully passed that on to me. I swear to you, this is what we prayed for a couple of years. Bless us, our Lord, for these, I guess, which we're about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. I guess. Like, that was, like, the most poetic thing that someone could write. Like, bless us, I guess, for these things that we've received. And I'm telling you, my dad prayed that prayer for years. Years. Until he finally, I don't know, got, saw the, the real deal somewhere. But I'm curious, like, have you ever been there? Have you ever sang the wrong lyrics to a song? Have you ever said the wrong prayer? Or stated the wrong fact? Or said the wrong name? To someone, raise your hand if that's ever been true of you. 
And if that's true of you, congratulations, because you are part of the human race. You are just like everybody else. And so the rest of the text of Jude, I think, addresses very much that kind of wrongness. Those, those times in your life when you know that you are right about something, even though in reality you are wrong. And so Jude is going to begin this last portion of his letter by talking to or about two different kinds of people. There are those who are, quote unquote, dear friends, according to Jude, the people who are faithful to truth, the people who are faithful to Jesus. And there are these other people that Jude calls scoffers. He says, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. And what Jude is doing here is he's, he's reminding readers that what he's sharing with them is, is nothing new. He's saying the same thing that the apostles said would happen a long time ago, and now it's happening. And he says these other people are going to come around and they're not going to live the kinds of lives that you are living. Instead, they're going to live lives that are consistent with worldly desires or with ungodly desires or with desires of the flesh. And he calls these people scoffers. And I want you to think about this. Like, what is a scoffer? If you're going to put that into words, what would you say a scoffer is? A scoffer, I think, is someone who assumes a position of condescension toward somebody else. It's, it, you're mocking somebody else. And it's usually based on what you know versus what they know. Tiffany and I kind of scoffed at each other over what an arbiter or an arbitrator was called, right? We, I thought I had superior knowledge. She said, no, I used to work for an attorney. It's an arbitrator. She thought she had superior knowledge. So we scoffed at one another. You know, we see this a lot with creation and evolution debates, right? The creationists often scoff at scientific naturalism, which claims that everything that exists kind of happened only by, by evolution from an infinitesimally small speck. I learned yesterday that my brother-in-law said that's called a singularity. And then scientific naturalists scoff at creationists who dismiss their body of study and, and research as ill-informed or uneducated or stubborn. And both groups are sitting there claiming to know something that the other doesn't. And what ensues is scoffing. You know, I, I think of people like Bill Maher or Richard Dawkins or Bill Nye even, who are people who've made a career out of being public figures who scoff at Christians. But we also need to be honest with the fact that Christians aren't immune to that kind of behavior either. It kind of goes both ways. A lot of times we're scoffing right back at the scientific community. Um, and so in verse 19, Jude continues, and he gives us a triad. If you remember last week, we talked about how Jude likes to use triads. He gives these examples of things he's saying in groups of three. And he does it here also in Jude 19. He says uh, about the, the, the characteristics and behavior of the scoffers. He says, these are, number one, the people who divide you. Number two, people who follow mere natural instincts. And number three, people who do not have the spirit. And, and I want to explain a little bit about what's going on here. Because the, the atmosphere or the climate that, that, uh, of the culture that Jude is addressing here is one that, as we alluded to last week, includes people who've claimed to have acquired or obtained some higher level of, of knowledge in their life. And so the, the word that Jude uses here that is translated as divide is a translation of a Greek word that, that is kind of hard to put into words, but it represents a, a group of people who, in the words of one commentator, keep themselves to themselves. They keep themselves to themselves. 
In other words, it's a word that reflects the, the forming of cliques or exclusive groups of people. Now, these might be wealthy people. They might be high, more highly educated people. And it's likely a precursor to the, the Gnostic movement that was to come. Gnosticism. How many of you have heard the word Gnosticism before? It's a word some of us are familiar with, some of us aren't. If you haven't heard that word, Gnosticism kind of formed in the second century AD. And it was traditionally thought of, of, of as heresy, where there was this one group of people who claimed to have this higher knowledge or this more mystical knowledge about God. And so the word Gnostic is a, is a word derived from the, the Greek word gnosis or gnosis, depending on how you want to pronounce it. We also use the word gnosko, like I know something. It's a, it's a word that means knowledge. And so you have these people who are forming into these little exclusive cliques within the greater church because they believe that they understand more. They believe that they know more. And it's worth pointing out the obvious that we still have this kind of behavior, I think, in the church today, that people still form cliques in the church around people who think and act and believe just like them. But these scoffers, according to Jude, are separating themselves from the rest of the church because they believe or they claim to have figured some stuff out about God that other people have not figured out. And so the inference that Jude is making here is that these scoffers are looking down their noses kind of in a condescending way at other people. And they're claiming that they have the fullness of God's spirit, that, that they aren't restricted from their lifestyles the way ordinary Christians believe that they are. And they are these more enlightened people and they experience God in his fullness. But, but Jude is here and he's issuing a, a stern response to their thinking and he refutes them. And he says, no, it is in fact these people, these are the scoffers who are following their natural instincts, their flesh, who do not have the spirit of God. And there's this, this really interesting tension in the language that Jude is using here between what our Bible calls natural instincts and what our Bible calls spirit. Because again, I think the English translation sometimes misses some of the beauty or power that can only be conveyed in that native language or in that original language. And so the phrase natural instincts comes from the Greek word psukikoi, which, which derives from the word suke, a word that we usually translate as soul. But here it has a different meaning because suke here refers to breath. It refers to the, the, the air that we breathe. Everyone take a deep breath. You feel that? That is suke. That, that is the, the tangible oxygen, the air that we breathe. In other words, Judas pointing out that these scoffers are living and are ruled only by the air in their lungs. That that is what gives them their source of life. That they are ruled by their own biological wants or needs. And then Jude goes and he contrasts that with what the word spirit uh, means, or, or the Greek word pneuma. And this is important because pneuma is also the word for wind, which is where we get like the word pneumatic, as in pneumatic tools. It's, it's, they're wind-powered tools. But it can also mean breath. It's, it's what the Hebrew calls ruach. And this pneuma kind of breath is a very specific kind of breath. More specifically, it's the breath of life. It's the breath of life, the kind of breath that comes only from God or by the power of God. And so what Jude is doing is he's saying there are these two kinds of people. There are the, those who live their lives only by the breath in their lungs and what it desires. And there are those who live by the breath that comes from God and what it desires. And they are two very different things. 
And so these scoffers have the breath of air in their lungs, but what they lack is the breath that comes from God, the breath that brings life. They have suke, but they do not have pneuma. They do not have life. And to those who have the pneuma in verse 20, Jude says, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And so Jude turns his attention now and he turns it away from the scoffers and he gives his attention to the, the people who are faithful, the people he calls dear friends. And he gives them a series of four commands in order to, to persevere in the face of false teaching in the church. He says, number one, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Number two, pray in the Holy Spirit. Three, keep yourselves in God's love. And four, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Four things. Faith, prayer, love, hope. Amen. Faith, prayer, love, and hope. And it mimics in so many ways that famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, for those who are familiar with it, where Paul talks all about what love is. And he says that knowledge will pass away when completeness comes. He says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is, help me out, church, love. So Jude uses the same imagery, and he sprinkles in prayer on top of it. He says, faith, prayer, love, hope. This is the key. This is how you build yourselves up, he says. And so we can borrow even more from 1 Corinthians. In chapter 3, Paul talks about the importance of a foundation whenever there is a building, don't believe me, try to build a building without a foundation. It's important. But he says in verse 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is who? Say that loud, church. Which is Jesus Christ. So to the faithful, Jude says, you've got to be built up. You've got to be built up. And that foundation that you build upon is on the sun. It's found in Jesus Christ, that that is who, that is what you build your faith upon. You build your faith on the foundation of Christ. You pray in the Holy Spirit and you keep yourselves in the Father's love. I think it's this beautiful kind of tip of the hat to, to, to a, a trinity. And then comes perhaps the most important part for all of us. He says, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, you know, oftentimes as Christians, we can get caught up in the here and now. You know, what does my life look like right now? Why am I suffering right now? Am I being persecuted right now? Right now, right now, right now. We, we want to know why this is happening right now. And yet the Bible reminds us that we don't live for right now. Yes, the Bible says, you know, each day has enough trouble of its own. Give us this day our daily bread. But it doesn't tell us to live for right now. It tells us to live for what's to come. The Bible says we have to have an eternal mindset. And so I love what this commentator, Michael Green, had to say about this passage, about this, this last phrase. He says, If, however, as is the greater danger today, the future element is soft-pedaled, Christianity becomes a mere religious adjunct to the social services that true Christianity 
is world-affirming in the sense that it rejoices in God's world as made by him, redeemed by him, to be enjoyed with him, but Christianity is world-denying in the sense that living as though this world were all there is, is utter delusion. And so Jude says that the path forward, the way to persevere in our faith, hinges on our conscious wait for the mercy of Jesus Christ. And that is hope. That is hope. We put our hope in mercy. And so God's mercy is what spares us. God's mercy is what protects us. I've been studying with Muhammad. He's not here today. He immediately, in our first Bible study, gravitated to the, the language of shield. God's mercy is our shield. It's what protects us. We deserve the wages of our sin. And the wages of our sin deserve what, church? Death, Death right? But through God's mercy, we receive something more. We receive so much more. It is through God's mercy that we move from suke to numa, from the air that we breathe to the very wind and power and breath of God. It is a move from death to life. And so we must, as Christians, hope in and wait for the mercy of God. And then lastly, Jude turns his attention to a third group of people. He says here in the NIV, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. You know, we, we began our journey today by looking at those who were confidently incorrect. Those people who believed that they were enlightened. Those people who were ruled by the air in their lungs. And then we turned our attention to those who were confidently correct, to the, the dear brothers of Jude, to those who were ruled by the breath of life or by the spirit and wind of God. And now Jude tells those people to be merciful to those who doubt. Except that once again, I think the English misses the mark a little bit here because there are a number of ways of, of reading and understanding that statement, but the most compelling one suggests that mercy is not the word that we should be using here. Rather, it's a word that suggests that error, false thinking, false teaching can be overcome with truth. In other words, it could read something like this. Argue some out of their error while they are still of two minds. That's, that's another way of looking at this word. And so Jude says, hey, that there are still these other people who have not committed fully to the ways of God or fully to the ways of the world, that they are not the scoffers and they are not the faithful. They are not ruled by the breath of the world and they're not ruled by the breath of God. They are somewhere in between. They are of two minds. The Bible sometimes calls that double-minded. And Jude tells his friends that their job is to overcome their error, the error of their thinking while they are still undecided. That it's that time when Christians see that person who has just enough faith to be miserable. And they come alongside them and they put their arm around them. And they say, hey, let's grab some coffee. And they go and they build that relationship with another brother or another sister. And they begin to help them move from the ways of suke to the ways of the pneuma, from false to truth, from death to life. That is the job of Christians. And so our job is to give them new air to breathe. And our message to them is simple. Last week we said, hey, 
Those who die live lives of true lies. That's the thrust of what Jude has to say in the first 16 verses. But I told you last week that was stated in the negative on purpose. And this week I'm going to state something similar in the positive. That those who truly live never die. Say that with me, church. Those who truly live never die. Say never. 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 And so church, that is the mission that Jesus and that is the mission that Jude placed at our feet this morning. It's not just to remember those words, but it's to internalize them. It's to let them penetrate our very heart. That those who truly live, they do not die. They never die. That word never is so important. When you have the breath of God in you, when you have the spirit, the pneuma, whatever it is, you never, ever die. The suke dies but the pneuma never dies. And so true life is found only in the spirit of God. The Bible calls that the breath of life. And so friends, you look around, like we're in San Francisco. Our, our city is sparse on pneuma and it is rich in suke. It is rich in suke. There are lots of people who have placed all their confidence in the air that they breathe and these things that they can touch and they can see that are tangible. And the Bible says that those things pass away. And so there are all these people who are tormented between their desire to enjoy the pleasures of this life and the desires to enjoy the pleasures found only in God. They have two minds. They are trying to live in two different ways and they can't do it peacefully because those two things are at conflict or at war with one another. And so I want to remind you of Jesus' words that we talked about last week. Jesus says, I am the way. I am, help me out, the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except what? Through me. Jesus is the way. And the Bible says we cannot have two masters. We can only have one master. So if you had to pick, and this isn't rhetorical, if you had to pick, which one would it be? Would it be the ways of the world? Or would it be the ways of God? Would it be the narrow path that leads to life? Or would it be the wide path that the Bible says leads to destruction? The Bible says those who truly live never die. They never die. And so I want to close here in just a moment with a word of prayer. I don't know everyone in this room. Uh, We have some visitors. We have some young people. I don't know what God has put on your heart. I don't know if the Holy Spirit is doing anything in your heart right now. But in just a few minutes, we're going to sing a song. And if you feel compelled or called in some way to come and, and commit your life to Christ and say, you know what, I've... I've kind of done the worldly thing and I see the the misery that that brings. Like I'm ready to move from suke. I'm ready to move from the air that I breathe to the breath of life. I'm ready to move into eternity with Christ. If that describes you in any way, or if you're saying, hey, I've been a Christian for a long, long time, for decades or years or whatever it is, and I'm just not really living it right now. I'm just not really, I'm really living more for the suke and not for the the pneuma. Uh, And you want to rededicate yourself to your faith today i invite you to do both of those things this morning i think that the letter of jude the message of jude is powerful and it confronts us with one basic reality there is such a thing as truth and there is such a thing as false there's such a thing as good and there's such a thing as bad or as evil and we have to be comfortable with admitting that reality church um, but the bible is is so rich and abundant in invitations to life, as Jay alluded to in his communion time, God is eager to show mercy. It's already been done. Like it was done 2,000 years ago for us. All we have to do is receive it. 
All we have to do is receive life. And God grants it to us without, in the blink of an eye. We ask for forgiveness and he forgives because he's a good, just, amazing, merciful God. He's a merciful God. And so I want to close this with a word of prayer. And then I'm going to pray the last two verses of Jude over us. It's known as the doxology, and it's just this rich couple of verses for us to pray together. But as I do, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I want everyone to stand where they are, if you could. I want everyone to stand where they are. And then, I know we don't all know each other, but let's move toward the center of the room, and I want everyone to join hands together in one big group. We're going to pray together as a family, as believers. We're going to hold hands I would join you, but i got to read here in a moment. And I just invite you to, to bow your head with me as we, we go to God in prayer. Father God, we thank you for being a merciful God. Lord, we recognize that we are not people who deserve mercy, that we haven't done anything to earn it, that we are not righteous people apart from you, and yet in your goodness, you have made us righteous. In your goodness, you have made us holy. And we just rejoice in that, Father. I, I pray that all of us would be able to stop for just a moment and think about how amazing that is. There's some people in this room who've been Christians for 60, 70 years, and we've become so comfortable, so accustomed to your grace that it no longer amazes us. We sing amazing grace, but are we amazed by it? Father, I pray that you would put that, that wonder back into our hearts, that we'd be able to see ourselves in the mirror for who we really are and recognize the goodness of your grace and your mercy. Father, help us to be people who, who bring truth into the world. And I'm not saying like in this militant sense, Father, but help us to be people who, who show truth and love that that's who you are, that, that we continue to remind people of your goodness and your mercy and your grace and your patience. That is who you are. And you've called us, Father, to resist things that, that, that pull us away from that reality and to lean into things that, that remind us of that reality. Father, help us to be people who are reminded and grounded in your goodness and your faith. And Father, I'm going to pray these last two verses of Jude over us. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thank you, church.